0: Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We are back here with Art Leonard, and first up, we are going to talk about the Supreme Court's denial of a request from a Texas transgender inmate for gender confirmation surgery. Next, we'll talk about family law case out of a New York appellate court, considering whether to reunite a child with a non-bio parent after a significant lapse of time, finally, we'll discuss a case brought by a transgender professor whose health provider refused care because of the plan's exclusion of gender confirmation surgery. With us is Professor Art Leonard. He's sitting right here on his um, back at school from his sabbatical abroad. How are you, Art? Well, just two
1: weeks abroad, yeah, but it, it felt like seems a like a lifetime. Yeah. yeah, where'd you go? I went to uh, Zurich. Mm-hmm. And uh, didn't meet any gnomes, but I, I did go to the <laughs> opera there. And then uh, to Venice, where um, a group that I'm on the board of, tenant vocal artists, was doing three concerts of music of the baroque period uh, focusing on monteverdi and that was okay. the pretext for the for the trip but it was great to spend a week in venice it's uh, the artwork so the was emails.
0: it all expenses paid
1: no i paid <laughs> i paid but i was going to say how do i get on this board i, I don't even get to take it <laughs> off my taxes but i'm sorry but it was it was a wonderful experience yeah. i i had been for a brief overnight in venice like 10 years ago and yeah. uh, this was to spend a whole week there and uh Spend, spend it at a gay hotel. Ooh, fancy. And, uh, hopping on and off the uh, water taxis and everything. Yeah. And, and mastering a, a strange town in which every tourist gets lost at oh, some point. Oh, I'm sure. Because GPS, they haven't figured it out. <laughs> Venice is uh, it's a puzzle. But uh, after a week, you sort of get the lay of the land. And Where you were most of the tourists from? Uh, the tourists are from all over the world, okay. but it was off-season, so luckily it wasn't flooded with tourists the way it is in the summer.
0: <laughs> the gays weren't in town?
1: Uh, not a lot. Not a there lot a of lot. gays. We yeah. ran into a few. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right, so let's go into the first case. On December 9th, the Supreme Court denied a petition for cert in a case out of the Fifth Circuit where a three-judge panel ruled that Texas was not obligated to provide sex reassignment surgery to a transgender prisoner. Writing for the court was one of Trump's worst judicial nominees, James Ho. We've talked about him on this podcast before. This ruling, of course, splits with a ruling out of the Ninth Circuit in the Edmo case, uh, out of Idaho, which we've talked about because it was such a brown gra- uh, groundbreaking holding. Um, so talk to us about this cert denial and tee up okay. this important uh, case. This
1: was a cert denial where there were sighs of relief yeah. that it was denied because there is no trial record. Uh, the, uh, the inmate was pro se.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the state filed a motion to dismiss. The trial judge converted it into a motion for summary judgment, didn't give... The prisoner, the inmate, an opportunity to present evidence, and based his reasoning on the First Circuit's decision in the Cassilak case. Uh, so we don't even have a record with expert testimony. Uh, the idea that the Supreme Court, once they saw, uh, once they read the dissent, mm-hmm. if they read the dissent uh, in the in the Fifth Circuit by Judge Hawkins, uh, Risa Hawkins Barksdale, who was a George W. Bush appointee, she said there it is fundamentally unfair for the trial court to have decided this case in a summary judgment on the merits without an evidentiary record yeah based on just reading an opinion from another circuit wow uh it's did you it, it do we know who hard. the
0: judge was below i'm thinking of that judge out of the texas that everybody
1: picks uh no and i don't i don't have the name <laughs> in front of me but it was just totally inappropriate and uh the 5th circuit's wow. opinion also Uh, was totally inappropriate uh, on the merits. First, the the Fifth Circuit said that uh, under the Eighth Amendment, the Prohibition on Cruel and unusual Punishment, Mm -hmm. the courts have found that prisoners have a right to minimally appropriate medical care. You know, they can't go out on their own and get medical care. They're sort of at the mercy of the prison if they need uh, medical care. But uh, they're not entitled to everything they want. They're entitled to the minimum basics. And, uh, if there is a difference of opinion among medical authorities as to whether a particular treatment is appropriate or necessary, then they're not required to give that treatment. Okay. Uh, so Judge Ho takes that and says, since there is not universal agreement that, that uh, sex confirmation surgery is medically necessary or effective, uh, it doesn't violate the Eighth Amendment to deny it. Mm. Furthermore, he said the Eighth Amendment uh, prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. He says, so far, almost every court to address the issue has said that inmates are not entitled to sex trans- transition in prison, uh, to surgery. Uh, therefore, it is not unusual to turn it down. So it doesn't violate the Eighth Amendment. Okay. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, the inmate had argued, and by the time that it got to the Fifth Circuit, the inmate had uh, pro bono representation from a law school clinic. Okay. Uh, from Virginia, of all places, hmm. but uh, and so the uh, the argument was made that under the Eighth Amendment, uh, an inmate is entitled to an individualized assessment of whether a particular treatment is necessary for them. And in this case, the prison just had this categorical rule: we don't provide sex reassignment surgery without regard to the individual case. Yeah, and so they said that violates the Eighth Amendment. And he said, no, they can they can decide that if a particular treatment is controversial that medical authorities disagree Disagree. about it, Uh they don't have to provide it, regardless. Uh, And all of this contradicts the EDMO decision from the Ninth Circuit. And in terms of updating people on EDMO, the latest there was that in August, the Ninth Circuit had affirmed uh, the district court's issue of a preliminary injunction, and the state had filed its appeal. And actually, the briefing on the appeal to the Ninth Circuit uh, was completed on January 13th. So, oral argument will be taking place soon. And I think this issue, which has arisen in many different circuits, obviously at some point is going to make it to the Supreme Court. Right. And I think the Edmo case is the case most likely to go up unless the Ninth Circuit changes its mind and rules against the inmate. I can't see the likelihood of the court granting a cert petition by an inmate on a case like this, but I can see them granting a cert petition by a state prison system mm-hmm. saying, we are being compelled. To provide this treatment we shouldn't be compelled and i can see that appealing to enough of the justices to take it wow how it would turn out who knows who knows who knows uh they've never decided a transgender case on the merits but i say that today when we're taping this knowing that within the next few they weeks will. they may right because we have the uh discrimination case under 7 up there which is The first time they're really going to be uh, focusing on a specific transgender-specific merits thing. There is an old case, Farmer versus Brennan, from the 1980s, uh, involving the requirements that the prison uh, look out for the safety of transgender prisoners, and if it's obvious from the situation that they're in a dangerous situation, the prison has to take note of that in terms of how they house them and how they guard them and everything else. Uh, But that uh, doesn't focus on the issue of uh, constitutional rights of transgender people or statutory protections. Uh, So we're still waiting to hear that. Uh, I should add, before we go on to the other cases, uh, we are following pretty closely two cert petitions that have now been... uh, redistributed for conference several times. Uh, They were on the conference list last week. They're going to be on the conference list in a few days when the court has its next one. And uh, so these may end up being granted. But cases that are granted this late in the term are usually for argument the next term. Okay. Uh, But one of them is Fulton against City of Philadelphia, which was the case in which the Third Circuit upheld the right of the city to refuse to refer... Children for foster care to a Catholic agency. Oh yeah, they refused to deal with same-sex couples. Right. Uh, so that one is on uh, a petition for cert. And then Arlene's Flowers, which is of course a wedding case. Right. Uh, with the florist who refused to provide flowers, and uh, the State of Washington Supreme Court on remand after Masterpiece Cake Shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, this case was remanded uh, by the Supreme Court for reconsideration, and they reiterated. Yep. Their opinion. Right. Uh, so there's a cert petition there. To try to bring that issue back up to the court. Yeah. I should also mention there's at least one other cert petition on file uh, that asked the court to reconsider Employment Division versus Smith, which was the case that held that there is no general religious exemption from complying with neutral state laws of general application. Yeah. Uh, and that was a very controversial decision when it was issued. Uh, both liberals and conservatives had problems with it, and it resulted in the quick passage by Congress of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act Signed by Bill Clinton. Yes, and several similar statutes have been passed in in many states. Uh, So this question is a recurring question, and it's possible because several members of the court have at various times indicated uneasiness about that decision and Mm -hmm. an an openness to reconsidering it or redefining it, uh, categorizing exceptions to it. So there is a possibility, either through the Orleans Flowers case or through this other case that doesn't involve uh, gay issues. That they may come around to deciding that. Uh, and you formative. said that case
0: was granted, or it's no, just before it's a, them.
1: another petition that's okay. pending. That uh, was also relisted for this upcoming conference. Uh, they've got to decide. You know, do they want to take this issue on? It's a very, very hot issue. Uh, they're going to piss off. <laughs> no matter what they decide, they're going to piss off a lot of people. Yeah. You know, uh, because Employment Division versus Smith has become sort of a rock that people rely on to right. say that uh, that uh, there are no special rights for people based on their religious beliefs to not comply with general laws, including anti-discrimination laws. Right. Uh, so uh, the loss of that precedent would be very difficult in this current climate for gay people and transgender people. Very difficult, yeah.
0: What I like is when you list the pending cases, and they're all cases that we've talked about yes. on this podcast before, so, you know, we. We touch on pretty much, We you Whatever's really cover important. everything. Whatever's <laughs> important. I mean, There's a lot out there that we don't cover, right. well, the that point we do is, cover in Law Notes, right. but that's not covered on this podcast, but you're-, right.
1: you're Although the, the January issue of Law Notes, which is coming out shortly- is was so kind we're of talking, small. It was, it was relatively small, and part of that is because- during the last few weeks of December, there aren't a lot of opinions. A yeah. lot of courts are on vacation. Uh,
0: I just figured you got tired with vacation and skipped a few well, things.
1: Well, what happened was <laughs> I came back from vacation and we rushed to get the issue done. <laughs> right. Uh, and luckily, there weren't what a lot What is it,
0: of new the 22nd here? Yeah, the
1: 22nd. And, and the, uh, I hope it's coming out this week. I, I think you've, you've I made think progress th- on it.
0: We're very close. Okay. All right. So let's move on to, um, you know, we talk about a lot of federal constitutional cases. And it should be a lot of fun to talk about a family law case out of an appellate court right here in New York. Um, you know, a lot of the the cases that um, really touch on everyday life for LGBT people are decided by state courts and family courts uh, as well. And this was an interesting one today. Um, Uh, The New York Appellate Division—it wasn't today, but today we're going to talk about how the New York Appellate Division affirmed a family court decision where the court ruled that a former same-sex partner who had not had contact with the child born during her relationship with the biological mother— where they were apart for almost a decade should be reunited with the child and be able to have access and visitation. So what? Did, that's what they're considering. What did yeah, the appellate very, division do?
1: Very very interesting case. Yeah. Uh, the uh, family court judge up in Broome County. This uh, case arose in Binghamton, New York. Okay, uh, that's upstate somewhere. Upstate. I know. Well, it's in you know the northern end of the Catskills. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, family court judge Mark Young okay. uh, was uh, deciding uh, this dispute and. The problem was uh, this couple had met in 2004, two women. Uh, One was a counselor in a facility in Brooklyn, and the other was a convicted drug dealer who was required to undergo counseling. Okay.
0: (laughs) Did they meet in the course of counseling? They met, yeah. Okay. This is
1: a counselor and uh, a client. That makes me uneasy. But but but... after the counseling ended, (laughs) they decided to uh, live together, and they moved up to Binghamton because the uh, drug dealer owned property up there in a home. <laughs> Presumably she does something
0: else now.
1: Yes. Uh, okay. but so, so they moved in together, but the right. drug dealer continued to deal drugs despite having uh, gone through the counseling and ended up in prison a few more times. <laughs>
0: Can we just call her but petitioner?
1: Yeah, petitioner. <laughs> oh, thank you. Petitioner. And, okay. and uh, so she's petitioner and respondent, right. uh, continued to live in the house in Binghamton and managed the affairs of the petitioner who was in prison. Okay. Uh, but after... She got out. They decided they want to have a kid together. Okay. And it was the usual thing. They had, uh, you know, they selected a, uh, a donor, mm-hmm. a sperm donor, and they p- specifically picked a sperm donor from the same ethnic group of the petitioner. Okay. So when the respondent gave birth, the child would look possibly look a little bit like okay. the child of both. Right. Uh, and uh, so clear intent to both co parent. Clear intent to co parent, and the petitioner participated at all stages. In fact, even injected sperm at one point, okay. and was present at the birth, and cut the umbilical cord, the whole nine right. yards, and okay. was, was named on, court, on uh, medical documents as, as, as a parent. Okay. Uh, all right, But this was way back before we had same-sex marriage in New York. Uh, so uh, they were together for about a year after the child was born, and then they split up, and of course the child remained with the birth mother, and the petitioner continued to have parenting time uh, for about two years until the birth mother cut her off. And that this was in 2011, she got cut off. So she filed uh, a claim in family court in Binghamton seeking uh, joint custody and visitation. And the family court judge was governed by the precedent of Allison D versus Virginia M., the old New York Court of Appeals case that said that the co-parent was in fact a legal stranger to the child and had no standing. And so the case was dismissed. Terrible. And furthermore when she uh, she had been trying to maintain contact with the child and so the respondent accused her of stalking and got an order of protection that she could not come near or contact the child. Wow. Uh, So from the time the child was three years old the child didn't see her anymore. Okay. And years pass. Right. And then, so this isn't a case where the petitioner vanished, right? Or or gave up, but, right? But she she was dismissed. But then, in 2016, as we've discussed in, in prior podcasts, the New York Court of Appeals, in Matter of Brooke S.B. versus Elizabeth A.C., that's the highest court. That's the highest court. Partially reversed the Allison D. case and said, under certain circumstances, if there is clear and convincing evidence that this couple. Uh, jointly decided to have a child and conceived and started to raise the child together, uh, we will find standing for the non-biological parent to seek custody and visitation. Mm-hmm. Right, so this decision comes out in 2016, and promptly the petitioner files a new petition in family court and says that should be applied to me. Yeah. Uh, if you apply the conception test as described by the Court of Appeals in Brooke SB, I clearly qualify yeah and uh, the family court judge agreed. And the issue was what to do about it because she had had no contact with this child since the child was three, okay, in 2011. And here it is, 2016, uh, many years had passed. According to the respondent, the child had no knowledge about this woman. The child had no memory of this woman. The child had no idea that she was conceived through donor insemination, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, We don't know what stories the respondent was telling this child about how she was conceived or whether they had come up yet. Uh, When we project forward to today, uh, this child now is like a teenager Mm -hmm. and has never had any contact with this woman. Wow. Uh, So the uh, family court had to decide uh, how to handle the custody and visitation claim. Well, joint custody was out. They said there's too much acrimony between these women for joint custody to work. But there is a presumption under New York law that it is in the best interest of a child to maintain a healthy relationship with both parents. Yeah. If there are two parents. Okay. And in this case, it is clear that uh, the petitioner is a legal parent of the child under the Brook S.B. decision. Yeah. Uh, Now the respondent says, but she's only a child as a matter of law, not as a matter of fact, not as a matter of relationship. And the court said, that doesn't matter because she has the same rights as any legal parent.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so the issue is, is it in the best interest of the child to have a relationship with her? And the response is, but she was a drug dealer. She did prison time, et cetera. And the court said, there is no evidence in the record that she's still doing that kind of stuff mm-hmm. or that she's engaged in any kind of activity that would present a danger to the child.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and so the court said, you know, this is the vexing question, as I put it in, uh, in, in my summary of the case how to handle a situation where there is no real existing relationship, but the mother desperately wants to reestablish contact with the child, right. how do you do it? So the judge said, well, we'll do it in stages. Okay. First, we'll bring in a therapeutic counselor uh, to meet with the child and uh, to establish a relationship with the child and to introduce the petitioner and to explain the background and then proceed to supervised visitation, and then proceed to unsupervised visitation for a certain number of hours on weekends. Wow. And then at some point, if the relationship has taken hold and been established, they can come back to the court and ask for a more normal visitation schedule. Okay. So the family court judge, uh, dis- I mean, very, very uh, inventive, and I think it, it, it helped that a, an attorney was appointed to represent the child's interest who participated actively yeah. in figuring out what to do. All right, so... It just uh, shows
0: that family court is really almost
1: like social work. Yeah, it's it's a place to try to solve problems, right? basically, yeah. and figure out solutions that will work. Okay. And so the case gets appealed by the respondent, uh, and the respondent says that the court should not have used the conception model of Brooke S.B. They should have looked at whether there's a relationship. And if there's no relationship, then there's no basis to order mm, visitation. Okay. And the court said absolutely not. Uh, and, and as far as the argument that that uh, you know, the petitioner may be apparent as a matter of law, but not as a matter of fact, of course that there 's no New York case law statute that supports that right yeah uh, and and ultimately, what the uh, uh, a politician did was to affirm everything the family court did with two minor modifications. Uh, one is they said, because of the acrimony between the women, the chances that they 're going to agree. On a therapeutic uh, counselor are kind of slim. Okay. You know, we'll give them a chance. If they don't agree, we're going to set up a procedure whereby each of them will nominate somebody, and uh, the court will decide. You know, it's almost up. like a because arbitration we don't want, or yes, something. We don't want this to be delayed because right. the parties can't agree on who the therapeutic counselor yeah. is. And then, responding to an argument that was made by the attorney for the child. It's a good idea that the petitioner not be present for the first few meetings with the therapeutic counselor. Let the therapeutic counselor lay the groundwork and establish a relationship with the child, who may be very puzzled at the beginning about what this is all about. Wow. Uh, and once that, that relationship is established, then introduce the petitioner into the counseling process. The counseling process will go on for a period of weeks. And then, uh, assuming things are going well, then we get to the point of supervised visitation not in the counsel's office, uh, presumably at the home of the petitioner. And then, if that goes well, we go to unsupervised visitation. Okay. And then they can come back to the court to get a new order. Uh, and interestingly uh, for us, it was a unanimous decision by a four-judge panel of the Appellate Division, the author of the opinion is Elizabeth Gary, who's one of our out lesbian appellate division justices, wow. uh, and uh, who is also a leading light in, in terms of the failure commission of, on the courts in New York on LGBT issues. So it's it's interesting to see her lay it all out in this opinion. And it's interesting to see that a family court judge up in Broome County came up with the solution. I yeah. think it shows that uh, judges are becoming more and more familiar with the idea of LGBT families. Right, yeah. And that principles of family law apply to LGBT families like all other families. Yeah. And that the parents are entitled to the same treatment.
0: What a fantastic decision
1: it's to a wonderful include decision. It's uh, the the name of the case, let's see for people who may want to read it, is Heather versus Vinette. Okay. And it was December twenty sixth from the third department. It's available on West Lawn Lexus and I believe the New York Court. A system has their own website. Were you the only one
0: that really it. wrote about this case? Have you seen uh, anything seen, online I've about it? I've seen a few
1: mentions of it because it came okay. out December 26th while I was away. So oh, okay. uh, I didn't really get to this until I came back. And, and I did my research. She's just as Gary was working the day after Christmas, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least her staff, or at least the, <laughs> uh, at least the clerk at her the clerk uh, uh, issued the. Opinion. I
0: mean, I just find it remarkable that the respondent would have the nerve to argue. You know, there was bad law at the time. That's why this parent is estranged, and she didn't. She shouldn't have visitation because she wasn't around.
1: Yeah, and I mean, my and God, the court rejected that, right? Uh, because it wasn't her fault. She tried yeah. she filed a petition. she of was thrown out. you know it wasn't like she gave up, and if she had violated the order of protection to try to get in touch again, that would have been a problem. yeah, I and mean, it turned out that the mother did allow her some phone contact as long as she didn't reveal her name or her relationship to the yeah. child, and they said that the only lapse over the period was she did send a rather nasty email to the mother, okay. Uh, at the time of the child's eighth birthday.
0: All right. Yeah. But that's it. So what? And then the court said, that
1: <laughs> that's not a bit because because uh, the respondent, in addition to who
0: hasn't sent a nasty yeah, email,
1: <laughs> in, in addition to opposing uh, the new petition, the respondent uh-huh. filed a cross motion for a new protective order. Oh my god! Which, which the court rejected.
0: Well, it goes to show you that, that the the Allison D case law was terrible, and the Brooke S B case is having a transformative impact on all aspects of LGBT family uh, relations here in New York. So it's a fantastic ruling. It's good that we were part of that lower court or of the um, presidential opinion in Brooks S.B. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we will uh, go on to a case involving a transgender professor out in Arizona. All right, we're back. Dr. Toomey is a transgender man who is working as an associate professor at the University of Arizona. Dr. Toomey has been living as a man since 2003, was diagnosed with gender dysphoria and has received medically necessary surgery. Toomey's health insurance plan is provided by the state of Arizona. And while the plan covers most of the procedures that uh, Dr. Toomey has um, used, they don't do gender confirmation surgery. It's excluded. They have an exclusionary uh, policy. Dr. Toomey sued in federal court, asserting violations of Title VII and equal protection. Art, tell us about this case.
1: Okay, it's, it's sort of interesting that in the state of Arizona, they would provide hormones, and he even had uh, chest reconstructive surgery, but he wanted a hysterectomy. And they wouldn't give it to him. They right. said, we don't give hysterectomies to men. He said, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. Right. You know, and they said, under our policy, we don't do the internal surgery. Uh, so he sued. And they said, well, but you should have appealed. Within the within the system, you should have exhausted your administrative remedies. You Say what administrative remedies? The rule said no. Yeah, it's not like an appellate body has a right to depart from the plan documents and yeah. the rule. What I'm doing is challenging the rule itself. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: And they said, well, we should we should have uh, qualified immunity here, and uh, the court uh, should uh, dismiss it because uh, there's no precedent that we have to cover it, and therefore. Uh, we're immune from damages or personal liability. And he said, Well, that's not what I want. I want an injunction saying you've got to treat me on an individual basis, and you can't exclude hysterectomies for a transition when you provide hysterectomies to women who need them for other medical reasons. Equal right. protection. You know, uh, so there's an equal protection claim, and there's a Title VII claim because it's an employee benefit, and uh, you can't discriminate with respect to employee benefits under Title VII yep. on the basis of sex. Here we are again. Um, so here we are again. <laughs> All right. So uh, the state filed a motion to dismiss. Uh, various individual named plaintiffs, named defendants filed motions, and the university filed a motion. Uh, and uh, the federal district judge, uh, Rosemary Marquez, uh, sent the case over to a uh, magistrate to rule. To They, they produce what is called uh, a report and recommendation. Okay. the magistrate, and that goes back to the district judge. And the magistrate took a look at this and said, I think under the Ninth Circuit precedent, there's the basis here for an equal protection claim. Because in the Ninth Circuit, there is a recognition that uh, discrimination based on gender identity is like sex discrimination, so it gets heightened scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And to just see an example of that, look at the Ninth Circuit's opinion in the transgender military cases. they decided mm-hmm. their heightened scrutiny cases. Yeah. So we have Ninth Circuit precedent. Uh, to keep the equal protection case in here. Uh, And they said, because it's heightened scrutiny, there's a presumption that the exclusionary rule is unconstitutional, and the burden falls on the university, on the state of Arizona, to show that they have a substantial justification for it. That's a non-discriminatory justification. And the only justification they cited is the expense really. And you, you can't justify dis- categorical discrimination based on the expense of providing the withheld uh, procedure. But right. the, but on Title VII, uh the magistrate said, well, it is not clearly established in the Ninth Circuit that gender identity discrimination violates Title Seven. And besides, the Supreme Court has I'm cases saying, pending yes, on yeah. that. So we don't really know. Uh, so uh, recommended dismissing the Title Seven claim. Okay. All right. So both sides filed objections to the report okay. with the district court uh, because uh, Toomey wanted his Title VII claim, claim yep. and the university wanted to get rid of the equal protection claim. And uh, the district judge uh, said that she found there was enough support in Ninth Circuit precedents uh, to revive or keep up the Title VII claim. Okay, good. Said, all right, we haven't heard from the Supreme Court yet. Right. We don't know when we're going to hear from the Supreme Court. This case needs to be decided now. I'm not going to put it on hold. Okay. Which is interesting because, uh, as we've reported in law notes, there have been a handful of district courts that have put transgender cases on hold pending a Supreme Court ruling. Right. on From the uh, funeral home case. Uh, right. Uh, the interesting thing is when you're making claims alternatively under Title VII and the Equal Protection Clause, the usual thing is to decide it under Title VII. And if you decide in favor of the plaintiff under Title VII, you don't decide the equal protection issue. Mm. You don't decide a constitutional issue you know, unless you have to. Right. Uh, in this case, if the Title VII claim goes down, we've got the equal protection <laughs> claim in reserve. The Supreme Court is not ruling on that issue in the pending Title VII case. Right. right. Uh, so uh, there is a, a division of authority among the circuits on how to handle gender uh, identity claims uh, as... Uh, Interestingly, I forgot to refer to this when we were talking about the Supreme Court. Uh, when uh, the petition was filed from uh, Texas on the uh, prisoner sex reassignment case, uh, the state didn't even bother to file a response to the petition. So the first time that the petition was put on the court's calendar for a conference, they looked at it and they said, "Why haven't we heard from the state? We want to hear from the state. What's the state's position on yes. this?" So they uh, contacted the Attorney General of Texas. They said, you've got one week to file a response, which is lightning fast to make a response to a cert petition. So they filed a response, and it was one of these stupid political responses. They said, we realize that the petition says there's a split of circuit authority because of the decision in August by the Ninth Circuit in the Edmo case. But you know what? That's a total outlier. It's the only circuit that's ruled that way. It's poorly reasoned. The solution to the circuit split is that when that case gets to you, you should summarily reverse it, (laughs) which I characterize in law notes as chutzpah. (laughs) Because because if you look at the district court decision by Judge Windmill and Mm -hmm. the Ninth Circuit opinion – they're extensive. They go into great detail the medical background and the history and the history of the. This isn't a, a poorly reasoned, flippant sort of. Yes, of course, she gets sex reassignment surgery. It's a deeply considered case right. and it focuses on the individual. Yeah. It says we're not making a categorical ruling that every transgender prisoner is entitled to it. We're saying that in a particular case, if there is strong medical evidence that it's necessary for this person yeah. who has attempted to castrate herself several times, I remember bloody mess, the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, for this person, it's it's necessary. Uh, so that's a very nuanced decision. It's, right. it's not a careless or outlaw type decision. Yeah, and if
0: you want to go back in time and listen to the right. podcast on EDMO, it's only yeah. a few months old. We, right. we talked about this in relatively
1: recent history. So in this case, the, the judge says, okay, we're going to send it back. <laughs> uh, send it back. This is the Court of Appeals. We're going to send it to discovery. You yeah. know, we're going to deny the motion to dismiss and send it to discovery, and we'll figure out what's going on here. But the court makes it very clear whether you're talking under Title VII or under the Equal Protection Clause, that saving money is not a legitimate ground to discriminate on the basis of gender identity. And that's been well established in sex discrimination cases. Uh, The the claim was that it's more expensive uh, to insure women and to provide them with pensions because they live longer and because they have all these illnesses that men don't get, et cetera, et cetera. And the courts have totally rejected the idea that because of expense issues like that, you can make generalities about women and treat them in an inferior manner. Yeah. Uh, So uh, I think it's likely, uh, certainly from this uh, opinion, it's likely that Mr. Toomey's going to win an injunction in this case. But who knows? And and, uh, depending how long the discovery drags out and when the Supreme Court rules, in the Harris Funeral Homes case... He might have a
0: claim under Title VII, or he might not. Um, Wow. And once again... We're looking at the, all of the implications of what the Supreme Court's ruling in uh, the Stephen, the Harris Funeral Homes case um, is going to be for transgender people in all sorts of contexts.
1: And no one knows when it's going to happen. Yeah.
0: What's your best guess?
1: Well, I thought since it was argued on the second day of the term, yeah. uh, we would have a decision by sometime during the winter, not wait until the spring. Right. Uh, but there have been times when they've taken almost an entire term to decide a case, especially if the court is heavily divided mm-hmm. and there's wide disagreement, even from the pro and con sides, as to the ruling. That's going to be this you know, case. There I might mean... be multiple opinions on both sides. Right. There might be there there might be a situation where there's a partial victory and a partial defeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's really no predicting. How so you're not on event.
0: on like heightened watch right now.
1: Every time, uh, you know, I check Scotus Blog regularly. And right. I say opinions are expected tomorrow. You check. I go online at ten o'clock. I call up Scotus Blog <laughs> because they immediately <laughs> post the opinion when it's released. Yep. And I take a good hard look. Uh, Okay. Partly because also uh, on opinion days, uh, they're frequently the days when they announce CERT denials as well from the previous conference. Okay. Uh, And so I'm also checking Friday afternoons when they have conferences because they announce the CERT grants the Friday afternoon, but they save the denials till the Monday or Tuesday morning when they next have an open session.
0: Well, um, we'll have to bring, I mean, we'll obviously do a breaking podcast on the day that the decision comes down, so that people know what what happened. Um, but oof,
1: I don't know if I'm ready. Um, all right. Well, uh, did you have an of note? Yes, of course I always have. It. Well, let's have it. A uh, decision by the Montana Supreme Court. Okay. Uh, the Montana Supreme Court is uh, has a state law, and this is true of about eight or nine states yeah. that still recognizes common law marriages. Okay. And the question is. What about a same-sex couple that's splitting up Mm -hmm. that never formally got married after Obergefell or after the relevant uh, Court of Appeals, uh, I think in Montana's the Tenth Circuit? Mm-hmm. But you know the, the relevant court of appeals because some people had same sex marriage before Obergefell. Right. Remember, by the time Obergefell came around, the majority of states had same sex right. marriage because of know court what of appeals decision. happened decisions. in the Tenth Circuit. Yeah, uh, Tenth was one of the first. Okay. Actually, to have same sex marriage. Yeah. Okay. Because it was a decision in Utah. Remember.
0: Oh right. That yeah.
1: was like, one of the first. So uh, uh, in this case, we have a, an unmarried same sex couple breaking up, two women, okay. and they've been together since the nineteen nineties. And they have common-law marriage in Montana. And the argument of one of them was, I have a right to be treated as a spouse for purposes of dissolving the uh, marital estate and dividing the property, et etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, even though they never got married right. formally. Right. And uh, the Montana Supreme Court said, yeah, you do. We have common-law marriage here. And let's look at the facts about your relationship dating back to the 1990s. And does it meet our test? We have a three-part test in Montana for common law marriage that the parties were competent to enter into a marriage, assumed a marital relationship by mutual consent, and confirmed their marriage by cohabitation and public repute. Now, taking into account that at the time, at the at the time when they first got together, there was nowhere in the world where same-sex couples could marry. Right. Obviously... Uh, they were not competent to enter into a marriage in that sense at that time. Yeah. But if we project, the Burger fell backwards, yeah. as we should, because right. it's based on the 14th Amendment, which was adopted in the 1860s. Right. It, it was there. It, it was, was there. always unconstitutional. So they were competent to marry, it's just nobody knew. <laughs> Who right? knew? That's you know, so we, we dated back. The funny thing is, these women moved around a lot, because one of them had a, a an occupation where they ke- kept moving to different states, and they lived for a while here and a while there. Who would want to live in and Montana? some of the states they lived in had common Law marriage, and some of them didn't. Okay, And the, the question is, uh, and the court doesn't really go into detail on this, where were they living when they first formed their relationship? Was it a common law marriage jurisdiction or not? Oh, my God. And that's not totally clear. Uh, but our author <laughs> on this article, Matt Goodwin, did a little research. Oh, we love Matt Goodwin. And, and he, he gave, uh, he said, there are nine jurisdictions that recognize common law marriage. A few others wow. do for limited purposes. Uh, New York uh, generally does not. Uh, although for very limited purposes in terms of certain benefits and survival claims, they do if people were living together in a jurisdiction that had common law marriage for a substantial period of time before they moved to New York. Uh, But uh, in terms of tacking on the pre-marital, uh, the time before a burger fell, when people were together and using that to decide what is marital property. Right, it's all property acquired
0: during that time during would be up. Could be marital yeah.
1: property if we go backwards. New York doesn't tack backwards, or at least hasn't so far. But this Montana court does. It wow. says dating way back to the 1990s, everything that was acquired by this couple is potentially. And New York's done it differently. New York is different. Well, in those rare instances, in those rare instances where they even do it, right. Uh, okay. So. Uh, I mean, caution to people who are listening. Don't assume that your uh, state has common law marriage. Do a little research. It's easy to do online. Just put in common law marriage, or read up your read law notes. law
0: notes. I mean, I, the authors that you um, that you edit on law notes are all volunteers, right? And they're doing this research and writing of these cases because they care about the product and they. Um, are just giving this tremendous service to our readers
1: and um, just goes to show you the although, level of although detail. Although we run into certain problems. I have two recent law school graduates who are writing for me as students okay. and wanted to continue. And in both cases, they discovered that their bosses, who uh, uh, in one case was a public agency, and in another case is clerking for a judge, mm. they said, no, we don't want you to write. yeah. We don't you write about to be expecting stuff, but, e- yeah. expressing an opinion yeah and and so we've lost some writers uh, along the way all right on that well drive. if
0: you're listening any fabulous
1: writers yeah. are, you, are you looking we we are always interested in people who are willing to commit to uh, deal with deadlines to turn in stuff when we need it uh, okay. I try to give people a few weeks on a, on a case which means I end up writing most of the cases that happen late in the month yeah uh, but uh, if, if Come up early in the if month, you're going to
0: make art's life easier, you can write and express your opinion in law notes. If you're going to make right. it harder, don't
1: although, join although us. Although they, <laughs> they ha- there should be journalistic accounts. Uh, I do tell our writers, you can interject some opinion and some yeah. comments the way I do, usually towards the end of, of the write-up. But it, we want a an even-handed, right. objective sort of journalistic account right. of, okay. of the court's decision. Yeah.
0: Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Art. And we'll be back with our next episode of the Law Notes podcast, pretty in short order, because it's almost almost February. February.
1: (laughs) All right. And and I've already started writing the February issue. And
0: we don't know what's going to happen at the Supreme Court, so it might be even sooner than that. All right. Thank you for listening.